Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. We've got a return author today. A return author. And it's an interesting book, which means both of us are going to be doing the interviewing. So shall we get underway? Absolutely, Dave. Jan, no man is an island entirely of itself. You knew I'd come up with that because the book is called Islands. But Peggy Frew has taken a more nuanced look at the concept of islands in her novel entitled Islands. So, Peggy, welcome back to 3CR. Thank you. It's nice to be here again. And on a very practical level, the island in question is a holiday location, Melbourne-based, so we can imagine what the island is, but... It's an important part. That island is an important part of the social fabric as well as the sort of family unity that is there. How do you see that island as a physical thing? So the island on which a, a good part of the book is set is Philip Island, which is a real place that probably many of well, have we all visited it? In yes, I think we have. Yeah, we have. We've been to the penguins. penguins. Yeah. the penguins, so a couple of hours drive from Melbourne. And I have a long personal history with that place. I, um, My family owned a holiday house there. I, I spent all my holidays there as a child. And then um, when I kind of grew up and met my partner, it turned out that he also owned a, oh. <laughs> he owned a house there. So around the time that my family home was sold and, and I no longer had access to that, um, my partner and I started visiting there and so now we take our children there as well. So I really felt that I had to draw on that. I thought it was quite unusual to have such a um, long history with one place and to continue to... But it's almost ubiquitous place. in Melbourne culture. You've got to go down and see the, the fairy penguins, but there are the smells, the sights, mm. the sounds. But also then, that island represents memory, as you say, you had a childhood there and you're continuing your association with the island so there there are memories over time there and there's also a sort of generational continuity how important is that well i think in writing well in the writing that i'm interested in very important i think i'm really interested in I'm just mostly interested in relationships, I think, particularly family relationships within a family, and so generational differences and connections are a big part of that. But it's a unity, therefore. The island is providing that unity in the family, that collective memory, and also a sort of social consciousness about how we use an island like that. But that then gets us into the island as being metaphorical and the characters, because you have a range of characters that are all, in many ways, drifting like islands, unconnected, which goes against what uh, John Donne was saying. But there's Helen, who's the mother. What can you tell us about her? So when we first meet the family that Islands is concerned with, um, actually not when we first meet them because we sort of meet them gradually mm-hmm. because the book's written from multiple perspectives, but... The family at the centre of the book is the Worth family and Helen is the mother. Um, And I feel a bit like we don't really get to know Helen very well until quite late in the book. So, And 
I think that the reason for that is that I wanted us to get Helen through the eyes of other family members first so that then when we did finally kind of go into her backstory and her history it might come to some readers as a bit of a kind of explanation as to how she ended up being this quite because she's a quite impenetrable character to those even those closest to her her family she sort of makes inexplicable decisions but there's a sexuality about helen as well um helen in the bath at Avoca Street, her body is lush, is greedy, is shameless, opening in the water, taking up all the space, hair and lips and flesh. Junie hates this body. Junie doesn't want to see it, but it's always there, a hungry, soft monster wanting sex. This is when Junie is older, when she can't not see things. Mm. So there's a presence there with, with Helen. Yeah, so, and I think part of the reason that I sort of saved her her history and her backstory for later was that I really did want to present first what Junie, who's the older daughter in the family, what her perceptions of her mother are. And I think I'm really interested in um, the kind of early stages of adolescence and um, emerging sexuality in children particularly girls and how that relates to the sexuality of their mother particularly what might be going on in the life of a middle-aged woman and so I wanted to write about it first from the child's perspective and kind of really embody the um, sharpness and the kind of um, harshness of that very um, quite one-dimensional perspective first and then later on I wanted to sort of be able to open it out. But you also toy with the reader as well because you then give the perspective of Helen's parents which adds then dimension to how we've been seeing Helen all the way through. Yeah that's right I mean I I've some words that have been used to describe this book are uh, mosaic in style or kaleidoscopic and I, I really wanted to write a book that felt that it was coming at the same material from multiple angles so that it, over time this accumulated kind of portrait of a family comes up and there's no kind of definitive story or angle because everybody's experiences of the same events differ. We'll get to the kaleidoscope, but you've just introduced some of the other characters. You've got John, the father, weeping. Neither of the children wanted to sit next to him in the car just in case he started crying. Oh, poor John. <laughs> because, and therefore there's a problem in the relationship between Helen and John. You've got June, who's the main protagonist in many ways throughout the story. And Anna, how much can you tell us about Anna? Because it's a crucial pivot. Yeah, well, we, I suppose we don't want to give anything away, but I don't think it is giving anything away to know that um, the story sort of centres around Anna's mysterious disappearance at the age of 15. It's on the back cover. That's not giving anything away. <laughs> um, and, yeah, I keep sort of using these visual descriptions of the book, but when I was working on it, I really felt like I was constructing a sort of spider's web with all of these interlinked narratives and at the centre of the web is the whole and the whole was Anna. She's just mm. not there and so we only find out about her from everybody else. But yes, and therefore we get to this notion of the kaleidoscope or for that matter, impressionism mm. uh, and how you've portrayed it. So we get 
the uh, perspectives of these characters who are all thinking about Anna. Now, one of the more, well, one of the interesting chapters, which came as a surprise, was um, paintings, which is about, Junie has her paintings on display. And really, we have descriptions of the painting, and it's as if the reader has to interpret the painting, but you've done it in words. Uh, one entitled Sex is a Mind Game. Thickly daubed paint, white and flesh tones on a deep blue background, small amounts of crimson, pink and yellow in details. Execution is rough. The painting is almost primitive in style. A room, a window, a bed, sheets falling towards the floor. On the bed, two naked figures, a woman with shoulder-length dark hair and a man with shorter, fairer hair. They are in a sexual embrace. Both faces have broad smiles. The woman covers her eyes with one hand. On the floor at the far end of the room lie a pair of scissors and some cut-up pieces of fabric, pink and red, lace-trimmed satin. And we've got to interpret this which is fascinating in many ways. That, well, are you an artist? Are you a wordsmith? Are you a painter? <laughs> I wish I was a painter or an artist. I've, that's never been my a strong point. My partner is, uh, and my children are all very um, creative when it comes to drawing and painting. Um, <clears throat> so I guess I'm, I'm an art lover and appreciator. I think... So Junie, the the daughter character that we were talking about before, grows up to be a, a painter herself. That's her career. And I think I probably wanted to use that, um, you know, to go into themes to do with making art and what we do when we make art and that I think literature can fall into the same category. And I know that I write. I write about things I'm interested in that I don't fully understand in order to try and make sense of them. And I think that Junie is doing a similar thing. Junie is painting to make sense of what has happened to Anna, even though Anna has disappeared. Mm. And so we, as the reader, are left to interpret the symbols, the ideas in the painting. But the painting you have provided is in words, <laughs> which is, is unusual. And you do this regularly. So the introduction is almost poetic. You were a girl, thin and young, with veins that showed blue through your pale, pale skin, and your hair was reddish gold, and really, you were still a kid when we saw you last. And it's a series of very short, brief paragraphs. Uh, and you do the same at the end, where we are left to... where, where a, a resolution of sorts is provided, but still, you leave it open to interpretation. Yeah, I'm, I don't think I'm interested in tying anything up in a neat package, and I don't. I don't think life is like that. Um, yet at the same time, like I s- said just before, we. I feel that as a writer, I am drawn to try and make sense of things, but it's a sort of ongoing, open-ended process. Um, and so, I think with this book, I really did. I wanted to build up this portrait of a family that felt as real as I could make it and that that does mean that it's messy and it's unclear and nothing gets no you know not everything gets finished and ruled off and well talking about reality I think when you mentioned talking about pubescent girls none of them want to be like their mother (laughs) and here we have Junie who so doesn't want to be like any of her parents but when she's older she reflects on it and she thinks 
Yes. You know, I think that that whole bit about looking at her grandmother, Nan, who actually has the beach house. And I think the only reason that family continue to see Nan is because she's got the beach house. (laughs) There's really no continue. There's no real feel. You don't get this grandmotherly warmth from Nan. Mm. Um, no. Is there a question? Well, (laughs) I suppose this is my reading of it, Mm. that Nan had a nickname when she was growing up, Ike. Mm. I know everything. And uh, she was she always was quick to spout, you know, what she thought and things like this. And um, when her son married Helen, whom she didn't like, you know, w- when they broke up, she was very quick to say, I told you so. So, you know, there's no love lost. But you, you feel that, yeah, her mother, her words, life is disappointing, this, this grandmother. And you see um, uh, June also looking back at her life and and what did she say she uh she has well she looks at her husband from under the smothering mantle of her resentment her fatigue and her bewilderment because she didn't quite understand how she had ended up where she was yes you know you have all of these feels and um Against uh, even her father, she, she, what she sees in herself. No one ever noticed my efforts, my steadiness, my loyalty. And this was exactly the father's traits. Mm. And she couldn't see that she was, she was doing that with her. Oh, look, I, at, at little bits that you wrote in here, different voices you got. Um, when Nan had a stroke and we sort of started off a whole page of this garble and we sort of realised that oh, she, she's had the stroke, she can't speak, and we see through her eyes. And I just, I thought this bit, waking her up, you know, this is Nan. She sees, lightens and darkens. Her little slice seems to have shrunk and blurred, an uncleaned window with the shade half down. I thought that was really good. I don't know who you know has had a stroke <laughs> or whether they've been able to uh, verbalise that, but, oh, you have a feeling that's what's going on. I really challenged myself with this book to try and use different voices and Mm. to get inside the minds of different characters and it it, you know it 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 took me a few years to write the book and that I don't think that's a freakishly long time novels can take a really long time but I I really did have to wait until the voices were ready and so for instance I was talking before about how Helen and I felt that I had to sort of get inside her mind to some extent, but it just didn't feel right until right close to the, the end of the process of, of writing the book. So <clears throat> I think that I, I, I had to really use my intuition a lot with, you know, who, whose, whose head I was sort of in the right state to enter. And sometimes it was about really letting go of control and and feel just feeling my way into a voice so something like the voice of Nan who's had a stroke or there's another section that's written from the point of view of a a young man who is he's not related to the family that the book's about but he observes them from the outside and he's um unwell you know he's got a a mental illness who was he he was menacing didn't know whether he was simple or oh god I was worried about him and so I I just um, sometimes it was fun trying out these different voices. Sometimes it didn't work and I would abandon them, but it was definitely um, something I'd never tried before. But you're right. giving us a perspective of uh, a situation 
from different angles. Nobody has necessarily a collective understanding, other than the author, of course, because they're fragments in many ways. Uh, is that how we are leading our lives? I think it just... I. It, it's how the book needed to be written, and I suppose I could have written this story in a completely different way. I could have just chosen one voice and one narrative and stuck to it all the way through, uh, and that would have been a different book. I guess it's just mm. you could write the same book in unlimited different ways, but I really, I, I realised early on that because I was writing about a family and I was writing about how there's never just one story within mm. the, within. But the people aren't the necessarily aware of the other's story. Yeah. And what they're going through. That's right. And that, in many ways, accounts or we try ourselves to puzzle through what has happened to Anna and why she disappeared. Mm. I thought just how all the characters, the parents and the sister, related to the grief of Anna's disappearance was fascinating. Um, you know, with reflection, the mother, Helen, wanted to look at the good times. Mm. And that really, really upset um, uh, Junie because Junie knew so much more about her sister. But they weren't close, you know, the, mm, and, yeah. and there was never... There was never, there was never much love or empathy in this family, no, not much talking. <laughs> but the, uh, the way John sees the situation, or addresses and comes to terms with Anna's disappearance the way Helen comes to terms with it, diametrically opposed. Mm. What's happening there? Yeah, that very much so. Well, a bit like I, what I was saying about before about how I had to kind of feel my way through this, the writing of this book and sort of, you know, sense which voice was the right one for the time to sort of go into and inhabit. Um, I think that I... When I was writing, kind of from John's point of view, about his his um, reaction to an unexplained disappearance and how that, and his reaction to having to live in a state of not knowing, which I think is profoundly distressing and destabilizing for most people, um, I could sort of relate to the way that he coped with it. You know, which was that he did, he needed a narrative. He had to come up with a reason. He had to come up with a story and. He, he then he committed to it, and that to him that gave him a, a sort of explanation, and that's what he needed. But that also drives people apart because people then come up with their own narrative mm. to account for a situation that is hard to handle. There is no necessarily commonality, and therefore that further divides people. That's right, um, and I suppose that's something that I was interested in as well. Um, I think that Junie, the daughter character, um, I think she finds that extremely difficult when her father, you know, sort of says, well, I've figured out what happened and that's it, let's shut the book, you know. that's." Mm. It's I can over. get on with my life. Yes, because she is not, she's a far more circumspect thinker and I suppose to some degree she is more comfortable with things being open-ended. She's able to live in an mm. open-ended kind of way. And I could relate to that as well. It's but Helen like, has to put a positive spin And Helen has on to, it, yes, which have is, a sort of fairy story. Yes. <laughs> but also then, you know, we'd normally think, well, look on, look on the bright side of life, positives, etc. But that can be very damaging. It can because it doesn't acknowledge anybody else's pain. Uh, and, 
Yeah, I, I was just going to say before that, you know, there's this theory that every character in a book is in some way the author. <laughs> and as I was writing all of these different characters and their different responses to grief and to loss and to being in a state of not knowing, I I could sort of understand all of them and I could see myself doing all these things depending mm-hmm. on where I would be in my life if such a thing happened to me. Um so I, I don't know if that's just because I was especially sort of fond of these characters, but, you know, when I was writing Helen um, with her sort of pronouncements that she makes about, oh, you know, Anna, she, she's such a beautiful girl and she's this beautiful spirit and even if we don't know where she is, she's still a beautiful spirit. And you, I sort of could see how you would mm. do that as well and I would probably do that depending on at what stage I was at, you know. Yeah, but it's, it sp- also speaks to the fragility but in relationships between people in terms of the understanding of situations and how we address in a world where there's, it's seemingly, a greater degree of uncertainty. Mm. And now we should sort of say that Anna was uh, a little bit of a troubled child. She um, was she bit of fingernails early and she got into the, well, she just sort of, didn't allow society to rule her, which a lot of the other people did in this book. And she, um, so we know that there was a bit of a drug area there too. And this is through her father's investigations. We we meet Grimo. Mm-hmm. Uh, now Grimo has has had drug drug problems and looks at his life in stages of colour. I was fascinated with that. I wrote the Grimo section, I think it was probably the almost last thing I wrote, and I had a wonderful mentor throughout the writing of this book, um, Tegan Bennett Daylight, who's an author. And who has been on the program. Yes, and, a, and a, she's a critic and she's also a teacher. She's incredibly talented in a multitude of ways, and she she read an early draft and then she read a later draft and we, we sort of... Con- emailed had a sort of email dialogue back and forth throughout the writing of the book she was she really went in deep with me and I'm eternally grateful because she made the book so much better I think um but she actually did say to me I said I'm thinking about writing so the character of Grimo had been mentioned by other people along the way in that he was a kind of older guy that Anna was hanging out around with not long before she disappeared and and there was we suspect that he was getting drugs for Anna um, and I, I emailed Tegan and said I'm thinking about writing a Grimo section and I remember she wrote straight back and said I think that's a brilliant idea I think that this book is very like a painting and we need a bit of Grimo's a bit more of the colour that would mm. be the colour of Grimo <laughs> in the composition and then she also said plus it gives us another angle on Anna it's someone mm. else's view that we can have so but the other thing is it plays on the reader's mind again like the vagrant on the beach so we're all speculating mm. as to what might have happened that's a possibility Grimo drugs another possibility we you're, you're te- well, teasing the reader or playing on expectation I didn't ever want to I mean I, I don't like 
the idea of uh, an author playing with the reader or doing something for the for the sake of being clever or tricky. Well, it's I, opening up possibility, real yeah, possibilities of I what just, we go through. Yes, I think I just really was trying to sift through in as realistic a way as possible what it would trying to imagine myself into what it would be like to be in this family and um, and also writing about someone who's not there and 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 I think what ends up happening is in a funny way the person who's not there or the character who's not there sort of multiplies because they they're no longer there to assert themselves so they become the infinite number of people remembered by everybody else who's well we get a fuller picture of Anna but it's not necessarily a reliable one or correct because each person has got their own impression I met her years ago Mm. I can't remember I was drug addled I can't Mm. remember etc but I think that Grimo I think that the reason that I needed or that the book I felt that the book needed him in there eventually was that he actually does give the reader some very important information about Anna which is that as he reflects on her and I mean he has he has stuffed his own life up to a monumental degree he really is someone with barely with really nothing left he doesn't his family have all given up Mm. on him because of his entrenched drug use over such a long period of time but because he's got such an intimate understanding of living in a in an abject state he's able to sort of communicate to the reader that Anna as he remembered her he says she wouldn't have become a junkie. She loved life too much and, and really that committing to long-term drug use is about closing yourself away from life. And, and it's the most yeah. positive picture yeah, about that's right. Anna. Yeah, so I, I was trying, you know, there was something intentional there. There was one more. It was dark at night in the playground and she snuck out at home and she meets Ryan. Now, Ryan is the school jock. He's fitness he's but he's not you know he he understands because he, he doesn't sees, either he sees her and it's everything you know that single family but he comes back and you can see his love and respect for his mother mm. and this was this was kind of but lost ryan has succeeded in the end even though he's disconnected mm. doesn't uh, have a social group necessarily, but June succeeded too. She's got she's got all these art exhibitions, but she still she she won't even tell her, her kids about her grandmother. Oh, I tell you what, oh, she needs a good hard talking to. She needs to go to the psychologist of John's. Or well, maybe just if she had read Peggy's book, she would have got a deeper understanding oh, of, of yeah, life and absolutely. how one can go about addressing it. Yes. <laughs> Well, we're nearly at the end of the program. We've got uh, three or four minutes left. Do you have a final question at all, Jan? You know, you, you talked about the abstractness uh, of the uh, beginning and the end. You know, I saw it more as repetitive poetic description. The start and the finish of the book, you were a girl, there was a house, and then finally at the end... Not far from the train station, there is a path. And this is repeated, oh, at least eight times with different stanzas. But in that destination, I really thought there was a big story to tell and I enjoyed the read. But it's the impression created there sort of thing. So I'm, I'm, you know, into impressionism (laughs) and the paintings, which has really struck me. And all of those fragments, in a way, perspectives and uh, approaches to writing. So mm. it's a very diverse novel uh, in style and as well as in story. So there was Peggy Frew about her book Islands, published by Alan and Unwin.